Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 50. Yes, we've hit the half century. This is our 50th show since we started. And this is where we talk about life, business and more. And we bring you tips and ideas for the changing world we're living in. We have a guest today who you've seen before, and he comes from a legal background. And in a moment, Kathleen will introduce him. But I have to say that there's a disclaimer that nothing we present here is should be taken as legal advice. If you have a legal problem, speak to our guest directly or your own lawyer or legal advisor. And some of the topics we get into, we can get a bit edgy, may be uncomfortable for some content consumers. So you have been warned, but everything will be safe for kids, let me assure you. And with that, I'll hand over to my co-host and she will welcome our guest. So over to you, Kathleen. Welcome and nice to see you again. Nice to see you as well, Peter, and thank you for that intro. And thank all of you for joining us and tuning in. We so appreciate you, and we love reading your comments. So please do keep them coming. If, uh, if you're interested in becoming a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And as Peter pointed out, we have our guest with us today. His name is Barrett Baldway. He is uh, a repeat guest with us because he has such an enormous amount of uh, a wealth of information to share with all of you. So welcome, Barrett. How are you today? Not too bad. Yourself, Kathleen? Great. Barrett, perhaps you can refresh our audience and let them know what your background, you are a paralegal, but let them know a little bit more about you, your background, and, and what led up to you becoming a paralegal. Uh, yeah, so as Kathleen mentioned, I'm a licensed paralegal since uh, last year, November 2019, and uh, also more recently have been appointed as a notary public. Um, I, uh, my background is kind of long. I took a while to get to where I am, but I was working with uh, drinking water regulations and that type of thing at uh, a laboratory as a manager at the management level there. And so through working in science and sort of right up against all of this uh, regulation, provincial acts and all that kind of stuff, I garnered an interest in law and decided after uh, a couple of years, um, I had moved out to Cambridge and was commuting back and forth, figured, hey, you know what? This doesn't make any sense anymore, spending four hours a day on the 401. So maybe I'll look at, uh, you know, possibly a change in career or something like that. And uh, I found a, an accelerated delivery program at Conestoga that allowed me to enter the licensing process at the Law Society of Ontario within one year. It's cost effective and time efficient. So I went for it. Wow. Very good. One year. <laughs> I got one for you to start the ball rolling today, but there's a threat of harsher virus restrictions coming. What are the human and civil rights implications for, of that? Uh, well, that's, that's a big field. Um, I suspect when it comes to that sort of area, um, you're probably going to see a lot more of the status quo until we get into any sort of um, fixed identifying points where we can say, oh, you know, this policy was a violation of civil rights or, or human rights and, or this one, you know, was acceptable in a free and democratic society. 
um, I think I kind of brushed on the last time where any government makes a, a policy or a law decision, um, any of those decisions are subject to the charter because the charter is constitutional, right? So what would have to happen though is somebody would have to bring a case either themselves or through a legal advocate into the courts and make those pleadings. So like the courts, the working in the law is kind of funny uh, in the sense that you don't really have, you, you don't make the laws, right? You're working with it and what's there presented to you. The government makes the laws, but judges and justices of the peace and legal advocates, we just argue about it, right? So the court is a dispute resolution system. So in order for any of these newer policies to be brought into the courts, it needs to be brought in the context of our adversarial system as a dispute. Somebody making the claim that, look, my civil rights have been violated here. These are the reasons why, and this is the damage that it has done to me, and therefore I am entitled to compensation for that damage. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, breaches of civil rights and stuff, one of the hot button topics lately is a, um, you know, the mask bylaw, right? There's a lot of people who feel that it's an unnecessary protocol and that the government shouldn't have the right to tell people what to wear. Um, and that is a reasonable argument. Now, a lot of the mask bylaws have also created provisions where they allow for people who are have identify under protected grounds of the human rights code um, not to wear one. What I've seen on the field though is a, a bit of a misinterpretation of that clause. Just because you identify on a grounds in the human rights code doesn't necessarily exempt you from wearing a mask, right? The, there's some key wording in there that says that that exemption has to prevent you from taking on or, or off a mask, right? But as, you know, has happened, what has happened is that people get these little snippets of information and then all of a sudden it's conflated to something that it isn't, which is, you know, really, uh, you know, if I can sort of ring my own bell here, why you should always talk to a legal advocate in <laughs> <laughs> matters of law because, it, there is a, a very formulaic and stylized way of reading any law, including bylaws. Right. I, I give you an example. <clears throat> We're getting some background. I think it's coming from me. I don't know. I give you an example. <clears throat> I've put off a couple of surgical procedures because the doctors have insisted I must wear a mask. And I've said I don't wear a mask. And I have a situation now. I've been waiting a, a year for a minor well, cataract surgery, which is really important for me to be able to see properly. And I had a long argument with the lady in the doctor's office yesterday who said, you've got to come for a pre-op and you must wear a mask. I said, I don't wear a mask. Oh, we can't see you. I said, well, you're discriminating against me. Anyway, I don't want to go into the whole story. So eventually I said, I will not wear a mask, but if you want me to cover my nose with a handkerchief, I'll do it, but I'll hold it. She said, well, that's fine, as long as your face is covered. But to me, the fact that I can't get urgently needed medical treatment because I refuse to wear a mask, which I believe is harmful to my own health, uh, I believe that's a serious uh, infringement on my rights. So do you want to comment on that one? Yeah, well, 
the thing is, is that a lot of the mass bylaws also mention that if someone's claiming an exemption, that they aren't supposed to be held to a burden or proof on that. They're supposed to be taken at their word. And then additionally to that, if you're claiming an exemption under a human rights ground, there is a duty to accommodate, right? But, so what you explained right there about having, you know, the handkerchief and stuff like that and them accepting that, that would be an example of an accommodation, right? I can't wear something that completely, you know, restricts my breathing and is pressed up against my face or anything like that. But, you know, if I come in and, you know, to give myself a little extra breathing room and stuff, just sort of loosely hold a handkerchief there, that's a reasonable accommodation. And I would expect that most places should concede to that as being an acceptable accommodation. Yeah, and that, that's what I felt. But it took, uh, it took about eight minutes of discussion before we got to that point. Initially, it was no, no mask, no treatment. And the other two that I mentioned were adamant. Anyway, that's enough about me. This is a show about you and your legal advice, not me and my whining about wearing masks. So I'm going to hand it back to Kathleen. Uh, thanks, Peter. Barrett, Ontario has uh, recently set lower limits for um, gatherings at private events compared to those at staffed establishments. Is, would that be considered discrimination? Um, I wouldn't categorize that as discrimination per se. What I, my understanding of the idea behind that is that at these private events that have received so much media attention lately, uh, there are allegations of people not respecting the, the social distancing rules and, you know, this type of thing. Um, I think that the sort of implied basis for this um, sort of tiered system where if you're doing something in a staff place, it's okay, but not at a private place, is that the staff are being trained to help enforce those protocols so the perceived risk is less in that kind of a setting, whereas unless you are, you know, hiring, um, and actually now that I think about it, that's an interesting scenario. What would be curious for me to see personally is if somebody got ticketed, because I believe your viewers were probably, and yourselves would probably uh, remember that the fines went up dramatically mm -hmm. for anyone hosting a private event. I mean, it's like $10,000 now. It's a crazy amount of money. Um, now, let's say that I wanted to host an event and I had no problem uh, paying some money to have people come to my house and enforce social distancing rules. So that's kind of an interesting question in my mind, right? Because I wouldn't be violating the law and the whole pretense behind it being a staffed or organized event is that there will be somebody there to help enforce the protocols to slow the spread. So if somebody was a, a private entity was to do that for themselves, I'd be very curious to see whether or not the police would even bother showing up or not, because that would be an interesting would be. I, I have a highly suspicious mind, and I'm convinced the only reason for that bylaw is to stop the anti-mask protests, quite honestly. Uh, but that's my opinion. So. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, frankly, Peter, what was surprising to me was early on in the lockdown, um, you know, we had a lot of the uh, Black Lives Matters protests and that kind of thing, and nobody spoke up and said a word about this issue then. 
drive but then all of a sudden when it speaks to the matter of masks they were you know really like trying to keep people apart i think there was a rally over in kitchener just maybe about a month ago or so and you know they had bylaw down there doing it what they do right mm-hmm. now i mean obviously the issues with racism in our society are really deep stand and important issues that need addressing um but at the same time I don't think that it's it that it's just and fair in a democratic society to say, well, these issues get an exemption, but these ones don't, right? Everyone should have the opportunity to say their piece, and it's a charter-protected right to do so under the freedom absolutely. of expression. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think we sort of covered this one, but <clears throat> let's go over it again. Using my example of the doctor, what recourse for people who denied access to services for non-compliance? You know, what recourse have they got? And we have some serious medical issues of people who've been refused treatment because they're keeping hospitals for virus patients and people have died from heart attacks. So if someone suffers injury or loss or loss of a family member through that, uh, what recourse do they have? Well, uh, generally speaking, the type of recourse that they would be looking at from a legal point of view is in the category of a civil law remedy. And that generally, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of that in the small claims court. That's going to be more in the trial division of the superior court, uh, which I don't practice in or even have authority to stand in. Uh, But I suspect that would be the form that those types of complaints would take. Now, there are some exceptions to that, where if you're pleading specifically under a ground of the Human Rights Code, that could go to the Human Rights Tribunal directly. And uh, the Human Rights Tribunal is a very interesting um, creature because a lot of uh, people in the legal community have commented on basically that there's some things that you just can't do in superior court or even the court of appeal, but the human rights tribunal is like, yeah, okay, this is the answer. (laughs) Oh, right. Um, You know, like courts, uh, superior courts, they generally don't require people to like, they wouldn't give an order requiring an employer to hire back an employee, but the human rights tribunal has done that in the past. Right. And obviously they would have to take into consideration as to whether or not the relationship between the employer and the employee was, you know, amenable enough to sustain that type of a relationship. But yeah, um, the, the courts are generally more concerned with correcting past wrongs and bringing things equally. Whereas the human rights tribunal is, is much more concerned about, ensuring that there isn't that slide backward into some of the um you know behaviors that were occurring before it was pointed out and acknowledged that there was a human rights violation some other examples and again this would really depend on sort of the specific circumstances that you're running into but uh i kind of heard online about a case of uh, an individual that had come to an apartment uh, from outer province. And this apartment was shared by this one person and their roommate, but their roommate didn't want that person in there because of uh, the COVID spread and everything. And the landlord was 
kind of, you know, wondering, well, what, what can I do about having unwanted guests in this time when people are supposed to be self-quarantining and stuff like that, right? So that would be a residential tenancies question. Right. It really depends sort of on what subcategory your issue specifically falls into and what the core legal issue is at its heart, right? Right. If you're looking for compensation, then, you know, perhaps the small claims court, if it's within that monetary jurisdiction or the trial division of the superior court would be your best avenue. But if you're looking for um, some kind of specific remedy pertaining to like as I mentioned, tenancy or human rights remedy or something like that, you could seek out those specific tribunals to get that type of remedy too. So it's really case dependent. Okay. So just a quick one on there. Um, if it was a medical issue, denied, my, my son urgently needs a bypass. He's denied the bypass and he dies. Uh, but his doctor, the specialist, the cardiologist, they all said he needs a bypass. Hospitals said, no, we can't admit him because of the virus. He dies. Is that not medical malpractice? Well, that's uh, that's an interesting question. The first sort of thing that you would be looking at is uh, a possible civil suit against the board of directors of the hospital. Um, sort of a, a not very well-known fact is that all medical professionals also have... Um, Uh, a tribunal or a board that they report to on disciplinary hearings as well. So in the case where it was uh, the doctor themselves that made a decision as far as malpractice went, you could take that complaint to their first to their uh, regulating college and then escalate it to the health professionals board. um, If, you know, depending on what kind of results happen there, when it comes to the issue of whether or not it, was the hospital administration themselves. Um, you're, you're dealing with a bit of a corporate veil there. Mm-hmm. So you, that would again fall into the sort of category of a, a civil dispute and you'd be taking the corporation and possibly you might even be able to make an argument that the individual people on the board might be held accountable as well. Um, there's, sort of a way to do that to pierce the corporate veil but yeah that's in that specific circumstance that you mentioned peter that would be kind of what i would be eyeballing if it was an administrative thing right thanks Barrett. over to kathleen so Barrett, how far can the government go so for instance we see things happening in in other countries such as australia where people are being arrested for posting to Facebook and they're being arrested for instigating, or they're being pulled out of their vehicles by police officers because they've gone past the five kilometers uh, restriction for being away from home. It, it, it really boggles the mind, but you know, these are free and supposed democratic countries. Oh. How, how far can they go? Well, uh, I don't have any specific knowledge of that stuff happening in Australia, but this, and, and this may be somewhat concerning to a lot of the viewers, mm-hmm. but to be perfectly frank, there is no limit on how far they can go. And personally, I would argue that the government oversteps its bounds every single day. I mean, you know, I see traffic tickets coming in where there's this 
ridiculously huge charge for some kind of a simple um, momentary accident or something like that, you know, and, you know, they're wanting to, to put this person in prison for six months or whatever. And I'm just like, no, guys, like, come on. I mean, uh, as far as how far can the government go, they can really go as far as they want. Uh, this kind of circles back to sort of what we were talking about earlier. They go as far as they want until someone challenge the, challenges them on it, right? And that's part of my job is to be available to the public. Um, you know, I don't comment on whether it's a good or a bad law. I take the circumstances and then apply the law, right? So, but yeah, I would say that, you know, there, we, we tend to have this really adverse reaction when we hear about these kinds of things going on elsewhere, but most of us really fail to realize that this stuff is going on here sure. every day. <clears throat> yep. you know? It's that, uh, and, and this actually came up a lot in discussion recently too about, you know, how Canadians have this perception that racism doesn't exist here. Well, you know, that it may not be as obtuse or in your face, right? I mean, you know, we don't have necessarily um, uh, as, as uh, well studied a history of the Ku Klux Klan here and all this kind of thing, right? But we, I think, have to recognize that our systems are structured on a colonial system, and slavery was a huge part of that colonial system. So once we take a step back and look at that, and really to kind of go back to your question, Kathleen, how far can the government go, right? It wasn't the government at the time, but that was the monarchy, right? The, the British Empire. They literally had free reign on any resource in the world. They were pulling people up from one country and moving them to a completely different part of the world. You know, half the family's here, half the family's there. So yeah, really, and this is, you know, perhaps, as I mentioned, kind of a scary thought. There really isn't a limit on how far the government go. What's important though, is that people challenge them. Mm -hmm. They stand up and say, no, this is wrong, or I disagree with this, not just because I disagree with it, but here are the reasons why. Sure. You know. Yeah. Right. Uh, the government uses the Emergency Powers Act, I think, to impose these laws and bylaws. Now, one could understand back in March when this virus thing first started and all the, the panic in the media and the misleading information from WHO, I think any of us, even the most skeptical as we've become, could say, wow, this might be a problem. And there would be some justification for the government bringing in these powers to restrict people's movement and whatever. That's now water under the bridge, six months down the track. Can the government really use these same emergency powers without providing any scientific justification for them? Well, uh, that was actually one of the criticisms with the reopening act that was passed recently by the Ford government was it more or less allows for the extension of a lot of emergency powers without there actually being a declared state of emergency. Um, now, it's arguable that some of those things were probably needed and not exactly necessary as part of the emergency. I, I think I may have mentioned, this might have been two episodes ago when we were talking about the EMCPA. Yeah. 
my my problem with it both on the provincial and the federal side was that there seemed to be a whole lot of measures that were thrown in there but nothing that really specifically and and precisely targeted a lot of the health and safety protocols right uh, for example, there was that order in council on the federal level that was passed about banning certain weapons. Well, why yeah. are you making decisions about that at a time like this? Why is that needed right now, right? And so similarly, you know, like um, a ban on commercial evictions right now, that was one of the things that, that was sort of carried through the, um, through the, uh, the change in the provincial legislation that happened recently. Um, you know, that's probably a good idea. And does it make sense to have something like that in law for this foreseeable future? Yeah, sure. Businesses got to get up on their feet because they were, you know, had the rug pulled out from underneath them, not three, six months ago, right? right. So it, some of those policies make sense, right? But for example, um, there's one regulation that a lot of people probably don't know about that's, that was uh, still in effect, at least into recent memory, um, it, uh, that allowed for police officers um, to not have to update their training on firearms and use of force. Uh, I believe the requirement was to have them updated on that training every two years. Well, under the EMCPA, that regulation or those rules were revoked. Uh, okay. And so you could potentially, right at this moment, have you know, a handful of officers out there whose firearm certification is, is out of date. Their training is, is uh, invalid at this point. And then use of force, right? Um, so, yeah, it's those types of things. I would think in a lar in an institution like the uh, police departments and the police boards and stuff like that, that they could be creative enough to figure out, you know, how to do firearms training safely with social distancing, how to do all this stuff. But the, I think really sadly, the reality of it is, is they just decided it was too much of a bureaucratic mess and they right. didn't want it. So they just shoved it under the rug until we have to deal with it later, which is kind of the, you know, really sad part of that so does that open up a whole new line of defense if we get arrested by a policeman waving his firearm uh well the suspension on uh limitations periods actually ended on september 14th so it'll be interesting to see there was a, a whole bunch of stuff it's kind of all coming back into place now um i perused through the regulation briefly and there's a whole bunch of dates and everything in there that I didn't pay overly too much attention to because I was looking for one specific thing at that time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, potentially there are some arguments there. The other thing is too, is with the court closures is how long things are taking, right? Of course. I think yeah. everybody remember um, the Jordan decision that came out that set presumptive <laughs> ceilings for trials. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of legal advocates, not even myself, we have cases that are sitting on our desk and nothing because we have businesses open schools open and everything else and we're not really too sure like perhaps maybe the courts are waiting to see if the second wave is really going to impact and we are going to need to go into another shutdown because i mean the the justice system is a massive massive system right Absolutely, and yeah. it takes a little while to get things going 
Right. Oh. We're going to be running out of Sorry, Barrett, we're going to run out of time. And I think Kathleen's got something else she wanted to ask you, which should be quite yeah. interesting. Yes, I just have one other question very quickly for you, Barrett. So what is the criteria for an essential worker? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think anybody knows, including the premier himself. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that classification or designation, it was a very strange one for me to see. Um, I, I, I don't like that part at all. It, it didn't seem to really, again, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, about the precision in yeah. tackling these issues, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, generally, let's say, well, you're in food service, right? So that makes you an essential worker. But I mean, like, do you know, the workers at Tim Hortons and McDonald's really have to be at work just because I'm too lazy to cook a meal. How, what, how, you know, how does that make them an essential worker? My affluence, really, right. because we're talking about it at that point, right? Yep. So, you know, the classification of essential, it was broken down by areas that you work in, right? And then there were basically a bunch of businesses that were clamoring to figure out how they fit into those categories so that they didn't have to shut down. Like just even for myself, right? Legal services sure. was an essential service, right? Sure. Well, except that there's really not a whole lot going on in terms of the process either. So, you know, how essential was I really? I mean, I stayed open and I, I you know, took client calls and tried to do what I could in the meantime. Uh, and that just got me a nice big stack of paper on my desk that <laughs> I'm fight through right now. <laughs> Uh, lovely stuff. I could uh, make a facetious comment that it would appear that uh, strip club workers and bartenders are essential up until midnight and not thereafter. <laughs> Sorry for that. Barrett, <clears throat> please tell our audience how they can contact you should they need to talk to you. Yeah, my uh, phone number is 647-525-6829 and my email address is barrett.bodway at gmail.com. Thanks for that. Barry. Back to you, Kathleen. Well, thank you. I think we are out of time. So um, thank you so much, Barrett, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we so appreciate all of you for tuning into the show. Thank you again. Please keep your comments coming. And if you are interested in becoming a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to Peter or myself. So until next time, take care.